Good morning. Uh, Let's pray, shall we, as we come to God's word together. Our Father in heaven, uh, we have prayed it already. We will pray it again. And we ask that as we look at this portion of scripture, um, given for our attention this morning, that you would show us the Lord Jesus. We, We come wanting to see Jesus. We come maybe not wanting to see Jesus as well, Lord. We know our hearts are muddled in these things. We pray that you would show us him. Amen. Uh, so uh, the, the story goes about a, um, a job advertising for a driver uh, to, t- to take a lorry on a, <coughs> excuse me, on a kind of treacherous mountain road. And a number of people apply uh, for, this, for this job and the applicants are interviewed. And when they're interviewed, they're asked just one question. Uh, the question is, now on this mountain road that you need to take the lorry on, uh, there are stretches of this road where there is no barrier. Uh, the road is very windy. There is a sheer drop. How close to the edge can you drive? So the first person, the first applicant, says, well, look, you know, I'm, I'm an expert driver. I've been driving for many years. I've got lots of experience. I, I can drive within an inch of the edge. Um, total precision. Uh, the second applicant um, jumps in at this point and says, I, I can do much better than that. I'm a better driver. I can let the wheels of the lorry overhang the edge and still make it to the top faster than the first guy. The third applicant says, this is a dangerous road, um, and I will drive as slowly as is safe, and I will keep my vehicle so far from the edge, I will never know how close I can get to it. Uh, And it's the third applicant who gets the job, the one who is most averse to flirting with danger. The the thing is this, for those of us who call ourselves Christians, who, who say that we believe in the Lord Jesus, Uh, When we flirt with danger, with the danger of unbelief, it rarely feels as reckless as driving a lorry with with the wheels hanging over the edge of the road. And when we flirt with unbelief, it can feel very ordinary. No, like when we're we're worried about something, and so with our worry, we go and search on Google for an answer, or we we think I'm just going to bury it deep down inside and keep it away. Uh, We don't think about praying. Or, or, you know, when we're feeling low about something, we're feeling down, and so we we do something to get noticed. Uh, We we dress up nice to attract attention, or we we mess about because we want to feel that we can provoke a response, and it hadn't occurred to us that we could bring it to Jesus. Or or, or when we just keep quiet about Jesus because we don't want to draw hostility. Or when being entertained satisfies us more than worshipping the living Lord. Or when the cost of following Jesus... Even a question of cost in following Jesus just doesn't really make that much sense to us because we never really got close to counting the cost like he tells us to. And we're so embedded in the world that in a world that doesn't care for him, so, so, so much of the time, if we're honest, we don't care for him much either. Now we can spend our time flirting with unbelief and it is more dangerous, more reckless than hanging the wheels of the lorry over the edge of the cliff that can feel so ordinary. Uh, in John's Gospel, we have reached the, the very end of Jesus' public ministry. In this passage, he, he goes away and in the passages following the coming chapters, he will be in private with his disciples. He will not be in public. In fact, the next time Jesus is in public is when Pilate presents him to the crowds, coated in the blood of his beating and with the mockery of what has happened to him. Or in John chapter 20, 
John chapter 12, not 20. It's a long way before we get there. John chapter 12, verse 20 to 50. It's a big passage. Um, I read for us really well. Thank you, Kathy. Um, there is loads in this passage, but a bit too much for us really this morning. But we're going to follow through it by thinking about glory, the glory question. You see, in, in verse 23, Jesus will declare, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In verse 28, he will pray, Father, glorify your name. In verse 43, he's going to speak about loving human praise, but literally it is loving the glory of people more than the glory of God. Glory runs through this passage, and I want us to think about it with the glory question in mind. And it's good for us to think about glory, because when we ask about glory, we're not simply saying what happened. We're not simply saying what is the history. We're saying what is the glory of it. You see, you could say there was a moment in time when a ball crossed over a line. That is the fact of history. That happened. Uh, but if you know that the date was the 30th of July, 1966, the line marked on the turf at Wembley Stadium, and for decades afterwards, spines will still tingle when they hear the commentator say they think it's all over. It is now. Um, what happened was, was Jeff Hurst scoring the goal that sealed England's victory in the Football World Cup. The glory of it is the beauty and the celebration and the significance of that moment. Significance. The weightiness of something. We might say the sun is glorious, and not just because its beams light up our planet, but because the mass of the sun holds our planet in perpetual orbit. The earth orbits the sun because of the sun's glory. So to follow the glory question through our passage, we're going to kind of make three points. Um, I'm going to try and link each of the points to a key verse in the passage and then kind of work other bits into it. Uh, we're going to think about what is the glory, what is the actual thing of glory being talked about. Then we're going to think, why is it glorious? And then finally, uh, what do we make of that? So first of all, what is the glory of the Son of Man? What is the glory? Uh, we're going to have um, verse 24 as our key verse in this first section. Uh, last time we heard of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Uh, he comes to the festival riding on the donkey into the, into the city, uh, riding as a king, and the crowds celebrate his arrival, uh, and the religious leaders, the Pharisees, are, 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 are angry about it. Uh, and in verse 19 it says, or the Pharisees say, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. They speak in hyperbole, but they hit the nail right on the head. King Jesus has not just come for the Jews. So in verse 20 of our passage, we find there are some Greeks. Not necessarily those from Greece, but those who are not Jews. That's the significance of this. Some non-Jews who come to the festival. They're God-fearers, but they have a request. They go to Philip. We would like to see Jesus. As you see, these Greeks, they, 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 they represent that moment before a rainstorm. You, you know, the moment before a rainstorm when the temperature drops and you feel that first speck of water, that first drop. And, uh, and when you feel the first spot, you know that it means a deluge is coming. The world is going after Jesus. Philip and Andrew bring the request to Jesus from these Greeks, from the world, and it's a trigger. The fuse is lit and the waiting is over. There's been a lot of waiting in John's gospel. 
It began in chapter 2. In chapter 2, Jesus' mother wants Jesus to be involved with a problem at a wedding. And Jesus says, no, not now, not yet. He says, my hour has not yet come. In in chapter 7, the opposition is rising and the crowd try to seize Jesus. But they can't seize him, it says, because his hour has not yet come. Again, in chapter 8, that opposition against Jesus is growing and, they, and they, they want to get him, but they can't get him because his hour had not yet come. And then in chapter 12, the Greeks come asking for Jesus. Jesus hears it, and now he knows this is it. This is time. Verse 23, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is glory time. And what is the glory? Well, he explains in verse 24 with a picture. Very truly I tell you, he says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. That is the glory. The Son of Man must die to bear much fruit. That is what is going to happen. That's the what of the glory. And, 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 and the what of it, the, the thing, this glory thing that will happen is devastating. You see in verse 27, as Jesus contemplates that happening, that grain falling into the ground and dying, he thinks about that is what will happen to him. He will fall and he will die. And he says, my soul is troubled, horrified at what will happen. So horrified, he's tempted to run. Is he going to pray that his father will get him out of it? No, he won't. But the terror is very close. The glory is devastating. Now, this glory thing that will happen is also decisive. There's a voice from heaven heard by the crowd but not understood, and Jesus explains it is the glory of judgment, verse 31. Now, he says, this glory hour, this glory time, this is the time for judgment on this world. Now, this time, the prince of this world will be driven out. The world, as John speaks about it, is the world in its rejection of God. The world in its preference for the darkness. The world in that propensity of humanity to lean towards what harms rather than what heals. And now, in this glory moment, the earth, the world will be revealed in its true colors. The light will shine in the darkness and show it for what it is. And then, the prince of this world, Satan himself, the one who has led a spiritual rebellion against God and governs over that rebellion, it's time now for him to be overthrown. His days are now numbered. The powers of evil and darkness will have their teeth broken and their tyranny undone. And in verse 32, Jesus says, When I am lifted up from the earth, to indicate what kind of death he will die, a kind of death when he will be nailed to a wooden cross and then lifted up to hang until his life runs out. He will be lifted up like that, but the meaning is deeper. He will be lifted up to die but then planted in the tomb like a grain of wheat. And from there, the lifting up will carry on. It will go on. He'll be lifted up from the grave, lifted up from the world. He will return to the place of heavenly glory. He will rise up to take the place of his deserved power. And like the old prophecy said, the Son of Man will rise to heaven to receive his rightful place in the eternal kingdom. And the glory is decisive. And this glory thing that will happen is drawing what Jesus says, he speaks of this effect in verse 32. When he is lifted up, this is the effect. He says, I will draw all people 
to myself. That's why the approach of the Greeks is the trigger. The whole world is going after him. He's going to draw all people, that is, people from all places, people from all nations, from all lands, all types of people will be drawn to him. Uh, in verse 34, the crowd are confused. They, they can't connect a point about who the Messiah is and who the Son of Man is, and it's a point Jesus has answered many, many times. But here, in verse 35, he urges them to put their trust in him based on what they now know. There's always going to be questions. There's always going to be more to investigate and more to discover. But he says, this is now. You don't know everything, of course, but isn't what you see of Jesus enough? He says in verse 35, you're going to have the light just a little longer. Believe in the light. He's come as a light. He calls people to walk in the light. He says, believe in the light so that you may become children of the light. The darkness covers the world. Now, we know that darkness today. We feel it. We taste it. We, we see it in the awfulness of what people do one to another. We see it in our own hearts, don't we? That shadow, shadow of shame. And here Jesus speaks about the trajectory of those in darkness is that eventually the darkness will overwhelm completely. Now, when people start to walk away from God, as people start to live without any recognition of him or submission to him, that path will continue, it will go on, it will spiral down and down into more and more darkness. And Jesus says, whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. I wonder, do you know where you're going? The one who walks in the dark does not know where they're going. Do you know where you are going? Do you know where your path, the path that you are on now, do you know where it will end? Now, we all walked on that path once, but the light shines in the darkness. You know, right at the beginning of John's gospel, uh, John said the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot win. The darkness cannot overtake it, and we hear the same in verse 35. Walk while you have the light before the darkness overtakes. Because the glory of Jesus lifted up is a, is a light that will shine so we can follow the light. Trust the light, become children of the light. When he's lifted up, the light will shine to all the nations, drawing people from all places into his light. This is the glory of the Son of Man, that he will die and rise, defeating the devil and drawing all sorts of people to him. Drawing them to him, that's, that's the key bit, isn't it? Look again at that picture he uses in verse 24. There's a grain of wheat that falls into the ground that must fall to the ground and die. Because if it doesn't do that, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. That's the glory of the Son of Man. That's the what of his glory that he dies to bring much life. Because if he doesn't die, he remains alone. He is, he is one of a kind. The only one in the light and everyone else descends to darkness. But if he dies, then he'll be surrounded by many others. In verse 26, he says, whoever serves me must follow me. And listen to this, and where I am, my servant also will be. That's what it means to produce many seeds. It means that as he dies and rises, he does it to enable his people to be with him where he is. And that's what he wants. He wants you to be with him. That's what he's saying. He dies so that you can be with him where he is beyond this world, out of the darkness and away from the shadow. 
And his dying and his rising will mean that people are rescued from the darkness of this world. His dying and rising will mean that people are rescued out from the clutches of the evil one and brought into his world to be with him. He's dying to be with them. Dying to be with you. That's the glory of the Son of Man. We're told this is the glory. This is what he will do. This is, this is glorious, we're told. There's something about this that should stun us into worship. There's something about this that should be like the sun and should set the orbit of our lives and the adoration of our hearts. But sometimes we just don't get it, do we? I, I know I don't. You know, I was, I was once privileged to ask to perform the duties of a best man for my friend's wedding. Um, and, and, and these days, the most important duty is giving a speech. I was pretty nervous about it, but it went pretty well. I did a good job, I think. I told a, a long, long string of jokes. And um, the groom and his dad were crying with laughter. Everyone else looked like they were biting on lemons. Um, it was re- I, I, I was funny. I'm a funny guy. It, it was really hilarious. Um, but people didn't get it. I don't know if you've had the experience when you're listening to a piece of music and the, the person next to you is moved to tears and you think, I just don't get it. And Jesus says, this is glory, what we're looking at here. But why is it glory? Now, why is this the glory of the Son of Man? What is the beauty of it? That's our next point. Why is it the glory of the Son of Man? Our key verse here is verse 28. What is it that makes this dying and rising of Jesus something that is glory? It's a real challenge for us here. You know, if I tell a joke, a really, really good joke, like the ones I did at that wedding, and, and, and if nobody gets it, and so if I stop and explain the joke so that people understand why it's so funny, and someone said once that explaining a joke is like dissecting a frog. You understand it better, but the frog dies in the process. It's kind of true, isn't it? But if somebody does explain a joke, maybe next time you hear it, you have a better chance of getting it. Now, seeing why the death and resurrection of Jesus is glorious, it can take time for us to get into it. It can take practice to learn why it is so beautiful. So as we look at this passage with that danger in mind, I want us to just just to point to a couple of, of things, understandings in the passage to help us see a bit more clearly. Now, what is it that makes this glorious? Why is it glorious? Well, I think we want to first think about the glory of who he is, of who it is about. You see, in verse 37, the whole of Jesus' ministry is summed up. Kind of bookends chapter 1, where his ministry is introduced as, as he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And we've seen it played out in the years that follow, and now it's summed up here in verse 37. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. They saw so much, but they didn't get it. They couldn't see the glory. John explains it as a fulfillment of prophecy. He refers to two passages from Isaiah. The connection uh, from these passages within Isaiah is that both these passages around them speaks about one who is high and lifted up, just like John 12 is speaking about one who is lifted up. Verse 38 refers to Isaiah 53. That's a passage that speaks about the servant of the Lord who is despised and rejected. He's a man of suffering. He is the one who took up our pain and bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. But it's introduced with this question, who would believe it? Who would believe such a thing? Who would believe that our sin could be put upon another so that he might face the punishment we deserve? Who could take that? Who can accept that? Uh, and then John refers to Isaiah 6. We'll come to the shock of Isaiah 6 in a moment, but first of all, the context of Isaiah 6 is that Isaiah has just had this, this utterly overwhelming vision of God. He's seen God high and lifted up. He can't describe what he sees, but it's a, it's a vision of God in his holy glory. And it shakes Isaiah to the core and has that glimpse of the transcendent majesty of the Almighty. And, 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 and John says as he quotes that vision, as he quotes that passage, in verse 41 of our passage, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. The glory of this hour is that Jesus is going to die and rise. But who is the Jesus who dies and rises? Well, John says, Isaiah saw his glory. And when did Isaiah see his glory? When he had that vision of incomparable power and the holiness of God. When Isaiah saw those seraphim, these mighty angelic beings like fire, whose voices shake the earth when they speak, and yet these great beings of power and holiness cannot look directly upon the Lord God. He is so holy, holy, holy. Isaiah saw the glory and he was dismantled by it. And John says, Isaiah was looking on the pre-incarnate Jesus before he became man. He was looking upon the Word who was in the beginning and who was with God and is God through whom all things were made, without whom nothing is made that has been made. The one in whom there is life. Life as a source. Life in himself. And, and then John also says, it's when Isaiah foresaw, the glory of Jesus is when Isaiah foresaw the servant of the Lord as a man of sorrows, loaded like a sacrificial lamb, covered with the sin of his people, lifting each and every sin from his people onto himself and charging them to his own account. John says, that's the glory of Jesus. Who is this Jesus? He is God who became flesh. God who set aside the infinite happiness of heaven to enter into our darkness. God who came down to be one with us and enter into our sin. God who is so perfect, he cannot even bear to look upon sin. He came down so that he could enter into our death. And now the hour has come. And the Son of Man is glorified as the Lord of glory lays down his life. Now the hour has come. The Son of Man is glorified as the Lord of glory will take up his life again. And death will be confounded. Darkness will fail. And a new day, a new world will begin. The hymn writer says, when I think of God, his son not sparing, send him to die. I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul. As we contemplate Jesus lifted up, do we get it? Do we see the glory to our souls sing? The glory of who it is who is doing all of this. And then 
the glory of the who who shines out. The glory of who shines out in this. You see, in, in, in verse 44, we're getting the final public words of Jesus. We, we've seen all of these bits already, but, but this is the concluding note. Jesus says loud and clear, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. He says, the one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. In verse 49, he says, I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. In some ways, it's a necessary implication of what we've just heard from Isaiah, that God is high and above. God inhabits eternity. God is surrounded by these mysterious angelic beings that we know very little about. Isaiah's vision of God just shows that God is so other, he's so high, he's so far, far away, so separate. As John chapter 1 begins and says, no one has ever seen God. How can anyone see God? Well, only if God translates himself to us. Jesus Christ is God, the Son of God, translated into our humanity. God, come to us in a language that we can speak. So when we see Jesus, this is the point, we see the one who sent him. When we hear the words of Jesus, we are hearing the words of the Father who sent him. When we believe on Jesus, we're believing the one who sent him. Jesus has has come to make God knowable. And so the key verse in our section, I said, is verse 28. See in its best view. That's what the Bible means when it speaks about someone's name. Name is about kind of getting inside. It's describing what someone most is. The the name is is the best point of view. The best viewpoint. So 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 where do we get the best view of God? We've already seen Jesus. He he is the one who makes God known. But we we can go a little step further here because as Jesus prays, in this hour, the reason that he has come for his lifting up, his cross and his resurrection, in this moment he says, Father, glorify your name. This hour that is right here, this is given so that we have the most clear view of God the Father. The voice from heaven responds to the prayer. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Now the whole of Jesus' life and ministry has been a a revelation of the Father's name, but leading to this moment. Now the beauty and significance of God the Father will be seen most clearly in this hour. And what is that? Well, John chapter 3 famously puts it. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The way in which God loves the world is to give. Give his only son so his son can be lifted up, dying to give life to many. And it's in this that the name of the Father shines out. It's in this that we see what love really is. The heart of the Father, as it were, is laid bare in this hour. And the colors that come out are the colors of loving mercy. The heart of the Father is an outpouring of love into a world of darkness. Love into a world of sin. Love that will take hold of the loveless and make them lovely. Love that will reach into hopelessness. Love that will bind the helpless into the invincible hands of God. When the Son of Man is glorified, Jesus lifted up through his death and his resurrection, the Father's name of love is displayed in its cosmic brilliance. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us 
when we had nothing lovable about us. He lavished love on us. And God in Christ died for our sins to bring us to eternal life, which is to be with him. As we contemplate Jesus lifted up. Do do we get it? Do, Do we see the glory? That's our third question. Do you see the glory? Our key verse here is verse 46. Do you see the glory? What does seeing glory produce? John's gospel has been leading us up to this point already. Back in chapter 2, when Jesus turned water to wine, John says, he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. See, it's when glory is seen that belief is drawn to him. That's where verse 46 lands us. Jesus says, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. As we see his glory draws our belief to Jesus. You see, in, in part of belief is about making a value judgment. Part, part of belief is, is, is more than saying Jesus said what he said and did what he did. It is that. It's not less than that. But it's, it, the belief is when Jesus is valued more. If we come back to the beginning of the passage and we have these Greeks who ask to see Jesus and Jesus hears the question, he says, this is it, this is glory time, the hour has come. Tells what the glory is with a picture of the grain and the ground dying to bring life and then presses it to the lives of those who claim to believe in verse 25. He says, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Believing in Jesus is is making a value judgment, an assessment about where we find life. A a, a value judgment about what life is better. Is life here and now in just we have today better, or is life with Jesus forever after better? What do you love more? Now imagine it it was put out before you in in the way that it is so starkly in verse 25. That you had the, the best of all what the world had to offer. If it was, it was put before you on a plate with all the, the riches and the pleasures of this life and all the luxuries and successes, but there was no Jesus in it, would you love that more? Or could you count all of that as loss and hold the things of this life with an open hand for the sake of knowing Christ and a home with him? For that simple, simple promise that where he is, you will be also. It, isn't it? That to be with him, that is all you need. It is more than enough. What do you love more? It's a hard call, isn't it? I think it's good that life so often deals as lemons. It's when we feel the shadows, the darkness around us teaches our hearts not to find home in this world. The darkness teaches us to see that this life is just a passing through toward light beyond the shadow. But it's the seeing of glory that redirects our hearts, that changes our loves. Do we get it? Yeah, look at, come again to that summary in verse 37. Jesus, he did so many signs, and they still didn't believe. And, and, and as John explains it with these passages from Isaiah, there's a real weightiness here. Now, now why did these people who saw so much not believe? Well, it should be expected, that's the first thing. It was foretold in the prophecy that few will respond. Who's going to believe this message? And, and perhaps even as you sit here this morning, you, you listen to this and you think, 
I don't think I can see anything attractive about Jesus. I can't really see this glory that you're whittering on about. And if that's the case, Isaiah says that's pretty normal. Who could believe this? Who, who could see this? And then verse 40 plunges it even deeper when he quotes from Isaiah 6, where Isaiah says, He, God, has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their heart nor turn, and I would heal them. Why don't they believe? God has blinded and hardened them, so they cannot believe. That is serious. If somebody is serious, because it says if somebody doesn't turn, they don't turn in faith, they won't be healed. If they don't turn, then the wounds of their sin will corrode their souls into all eternity and darkness will finally overtake. It is serious. Now, of course, on, on one hand, the blinding and hardening is result of rebellion. Sin is getting what it wants. If somebody refuses God in their life, they will find they cannot have God in their life. But, but I think John puts it here not for that reason, but he puts it here to be, to be a bit of a slap in the face, to snap us out of the stupor that we so often drift into. It's to make us look at this and say, well, how can we be saved? If we cannot see and if the glory is hidden and our hearts are hard, what hope is there? Now, the reality that God blinds and hardens should drive us to a kind of despair. We're in the hands of God. God who is sovereign over our ability to see. God who is sovereign over our hearts. But if we stay there, if we press in a little further, it's in that point we find our hope. Because since he is sovereign, to whom else can we go? Now, if he can blind our eyes, could he not open them? If he can harden our hearts, can he not also soften? And, and if we find ourselves struggling to believe, struggling to see the glory, the one thing we can do is, like the Greeks, we can pray, we want to see Jesus. Show me Jesus. We pray to the one who opens eyes and changes hearts. And, and actually, we see that here, because even as John explains why so many don't believe, in verse 42, we find that many do believe. Even among the leaders, it says, that there are many among the leaders who believe, and yet, and yet it seems these leaders are flirting with unbelief. Now, they believe in Jesus, but they won't do it openly. It's called belief, and we'll hold it as belief, but it's, it's, there's something deficient here. That they're afraid that if they openly acknowledge their faith, they will risk being put out of the synagogue. Verse 43 puts it plainly. That they loved human praise more than praise from God. They loved the glory of people more than the glory of God. They're flirting with unbelief. And we heard the risk of it in verse 25, that anyone who loves their life will lose it. And these believers in verse 42 and 43 sound dangerously close to loving their life. And what puts them in the danger is what they love, more attracted to the glory of people than the glory of God. They find the glory of people more appealing. They're, they're drawn that way rather than drawn to the glory of God. And so for those of us who call ourselves Christians, when we flirt with unbelief, the question is really a question of our loves. Do we see his glory? Do we prefer his glory? Now, somebody said that we, we, we live in a time when we can forget to talk about, when we don't need to talk about peer pressure, we should talk about peer hunger. Peer hunger. 
There's something about us that is particularly gripped by loneliness in this time. Last November, the World, the world Health Organization said there's a, there's a crisis of loneliness in the world. Not, not loneliness of people, not having people around them, but even in a crowd of people being agonizingly alone. And we hunger for connection, all of us do. Peer hunger. We, we want to be connected. Social media lives for this. Gives the illusion of connections and we can dive into the virtual world because we love the glory of people. We love praise from people. We want to feel known. We want to feel recognized and like we have significance. Or we can fall into patterns of people pleasing. We want to do what makes other people happy, which kind of sounds noble until it begins to adapt our choices and our behaviors and our beliefs to get the most approval. When we find that all we're thinking about is what makes other people happy, not whether it's right or good or best. Like the believers here who want the approval of the Pharisees, so they keep their faith hidden. Or or like these believers here who who, who fear missing out, don't they? They they don't want to miss out from being part of what's going on. FOMO. We can suffer from the same, can't we, when we overcommit. We run ourselves into the ground because we have a hunger for others to think well of us. Peer hunger. We're desperate for approval. We just keep quiet about Jesus. We don't own him in public because we fear what people might think. As somebody said, it's not wrong to want love and affirmation. It's just wrong to want it more from your fickle friends than your faithful God. Flirting with unbelief is a love problem. It's a love problem because somehow what is most wonderful doesn't look wonderful to us. The glory of God. The hour when the Son of Man is glorified and when he's lifted up and is dying and is rising to draw all people to himself and displays the infinite love of the Father. And and all of that just starts to feel a bit beige to us. And we prefer to find happiness in nonsense. And if we see that as a problem in our hearts this morning, what can we do? All of us, to some extent, flirt with unbelief. What can we do? Well, I suggest we go a bit Greek. We do what these Greeks do. The Greeks who say we want to see Jesus. We make that our prayer. Show me Jesus. Open my eyes more and more. Soften my heart. Turn my heart from the nonsense and satisfy me with your unfailing love. Well, let me just encourage you to spend a moment in quiet speaking to the Lord, asking him about the things he's put on your heart in these moments. And then I'll pray for us now.